0: If everybody wants to start making their way in and grabbing a seat, we can jump in. Good morning. Good to see everybody again after a few weeks of a break. I'm going to start a a new series this morning titled The Heart of the Kings, which we're going to try to take some of the principles we talked through last year, last semester, and just sort of apply those and see those fleshed out through just a series of case studies in the lives of the kings of Israel and Judah. And so we'll hit about 12 this semester, beginning with Saul and going all the way through uh, Zedekiah. And really the goal is going to be, yeah, just to glean one defining truth, one sort of important observation from each of the lives of these kings. There could be so many things we could talk about. There's so much content. We're going to try to focus on one just defining aspect of their reign, but then related to that, one defining aspect of God, one defining piece of kind of who God is that gets reflected in their reigns, in his response to their reigns. And part of the goal, what we're wanting to do, praying to do, is just to know God better, to know him according to how he reveals himself, to know ourselves a little more clearly, and how what we need from God to see why god had to send his son into the world jesus christ to be the king of kings and the lord of lords why all these kings that we're going to walk through some faithful some unfaithful some you know obedient to the lord others disobedient yet none of them would do none were enough god's going to have to send his own son into the world to save his people reign over his people care for his people and so in light of that there's a couple books or Two copies of the same book I'm going to give away this morning, Knowing God by J. O. Packer. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book, kind of a classic that he wrote back in 1973. It's been edited some since then, but just a great, very accessible book on the value of knowing God, just the importance of knowing God, but then also just how to know God through his word. And so, yeah, who'd love a copy of Knowing God? We won't give away books every week, but we'll try to give away most weeks. All right. Well turn with me if you would to first Samuel chapter eight. First Samuel chapter eight. Saul, fear, and the delight of God. And let's go to the Lord now in prayer together. Father, we do pray that you would help us to know you more clearly this morning, to love you more deeply this morning. We pray as, as Moses prayed, show us your glory, cause your goodness to pass before us through your word. Show us your steadfast love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your justice, your holiness, your splendor, your power. Lord, help us to be humble as we receive from your word. Help us to be honest about what really rules and governs our hearts, about who we fear and how much. And so we do pray that you would draw us nearer to yourself. Show us the beauty and the sweetness and the importance of the cross, where your son died in our place, where he purchased our forgiveness, where he provided a way for us to get new hearts, to love you, to love one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's going to be a great many truths we could draw from and glean from the life of King Saul. But here's one of them. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Because really the fear of man is going to be something that's going to govern the heart of Saul. Though he starts for a few days off pretty well. That fear of people, that desire to please people, not God, that awe for people rather than God, that fear of people rather than God is something that's going to define his life, something that's going to mark his life, something that's going to shape every dimension of his life, his relationship with God, his relationship with others, his relationship with his own struggles, his relationship with his circumstances. I think if we're honest, we can all understand it. I've struggled in different forms, different ways with the fear of man for as long as I can remember. I didn't know what to call it for most of my life. Just that desire to please others, impress others, not disappoint others, the desire for approval, for appreciation, for praise, for looking good, not looking bad, for succeeding, not failing, for being one way in public, another way in private for wanting to look a certain way in public, but yet behind closed doors, sort of, it's sort of a different story, just God's view didn't have as much weight as it needed to. And so all of us are in some way, in some process of learning a healthy fear of the Lord, a reverence for the Lord, how to love people more than you fear people, how to serve and care for people more than you want their approval. And that's some of what we're gonna see in the life of Saul, how the effects of the fear of man are vast, because pleasing God and pleasing people are two very different streams that come from two very different sources, and they lead to two very different places. And what the gospel's trying to do, and what God's trying to do in giving us a new heart is to teach us how to fear rightly, who to fear, how much to fear, what pure fear is. Which isn't, in the case of God, like this cowering, shirking, running away, but rather it's a reverence and awe that the fear of the Lord is the only kind of fear that actually draws you toward the object of fear in worship. Every other kind of fear you'll ever know, you either run from it or you kill it, but you don't draw near in worship. It's also why the Bible's going to say, yeah, only fear me, the Lord's going to say, because fear is always worship. And worship is always fear. You're always going to fear what you worship. And you're always going to worship what you fear. Listen to these words from John 12, tragic words. John 12, verse 42, it says, Many of the authorities believed in him, meaning Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What a statement. There's some of these authorities in Israel that they kind of saw the truth about Jesus. They saw his miracles. They heard what he was saying. They're like, wow, this could really be him. But you know what? I'm just not going to give my heart to him. Not going to give my life to him. It's just too costly. I don't want to be put out of the synagogue. I don't want to lose my position, my image, my reputation, my money, my status. Whatever it might be. So to have the truth of your sin right before you, of Christ's righteousness, of the way of salvation standing right before your eyes, and yet to refuse to believe simply because you're afraid of what people will think. I mean, you talk about the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe, and the life of King Saul is going to animate and illustrate that truth. And what's ironic, too, is the fear of is actually very deadly to relationships. You would think that being afraid of people would really help your relationships, right? You would always bend to them. You would always yield to them. You would always you'd avoid conflict. And so everything would be just hunky-dory. But what's interesting is that fearing people actually makes it impossible to actually love people. Because when you enter the room, if we fear people, we're so preoccupied by what they think. We're so preoccupied with looking a certain way that we're actually enslaved to opinion more than we're free to actually love them. That's why Jesus really was free to speak truth and love no matter what the situation. That's why Jesus was free just to serve because he wasn't afraid of others. He didn't come to earth to win approval. We refuse to say and do things that might offend even if it's exactly what's needed, or we attack and control people who who threaten us. It's interesting, it's one of the effects, I think, of social media, where you can sort of hide behind anonymity, and you really see more of the hostility, the hatefulness, the vindictiveness, the brutality that comes out of people, things that people would never say if others saw them. You'd never say it if your name and face was right there in a crowd of people. But something about if if okay, if others aren't there to really know who I am, to see me, to hold me accountable, but I'm just gonna do whatever well it's an effect of the fear of man. So the life of Saul is gonna animate and illustrate that truth as well. He's gonna try to murder David. He's even gonna try to murder his own son out of fear for his reputation, out of fear for his throne, out of fear for losing power, losing his kingdom. He's going to disobey the clear commandment of God to avoid losing the support of people. That's why, again, his story, this story is so valuable to us. There's so much we can learn. He's much more like us than unlike us. It's going to be tempting to sort of read Saul and go, oh, wow, look at him. Sort of shove him over there. Rather than, oh, wow, look at him. (laughs) It reminds me of somebody. The temptations that he faces. The things he caves to. Today we're going to see the heart of the people first revealed in their demand for a human king in the first place in 1 Samuel kind of 8-10. through Then we'll see the heart of Saul revealed under a specific set of circumstances. And then next week, this will be kind of part one, and next week will be part two where we'll see the heart of God revealed in his response to Saul, and then kind of our true need that's going to be revealed by God's response to Saul. And so the heart of the people revealed, that's going to be our first Kind of big section. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders gathered together and came to Saul at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. That's a hard way to start a conversation. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So we're going to see here sort of the the heart of the people firstly exposed. They want a king sort of after their own hearts not a king after God's heart, not even God himself. We want a king after our hearts. And Saul's not going to become king till chapter 10, but this demand for a king is going to start right here in chapter 8. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge like all the nations. What's painful about this is, did God go and redeem Israel from Egypt? bring them through the wilderness, bring them into the land so that they could be like the nations? Or did he call them to be very distinctive from the nations? Did he call them to be very separate from the nations? Did he set them apart to actually be a light to the nations? A means through which God would sort of love and show his glory to the nations. And here the people are saying, you know, we really don't like that mission, that distinctiveness, that set-apartness, that you being our king... You being our God, hey, give us a human king, something that all the other nations have. Make us like them, not unlike them. Samuel was getting old. His sons were wicked, so the people just couldn't imagine life after the leadership of Samuel. Okay, Samuel, when you're gone, what are we going to do? Even though God isn't getting old, God isn't wicked, God doesn't take bribes. There's nothing wrong with the Lord's leadership. He's not going anywhere. He's trustworthy. He would rule them. But they're not thinking about him. And how much is this the case for us that we think about the thing that's before us, the visible thing, the controllable thing, the human thing? It's hard to think about God. It's hard to think about the one who we don't see, the one who reveals himself through his word, who sits enthroned in heaven, but yet we can't touch him. Control him, manipulate him, get him to do what we want him to do. And so here the people say, okay, give us a king. Give us a human like all the other nations, a king to replace God. Keep reading. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. God says, don't worry, Samuel, don't take it personally. It's not about you. It's about me. He's going to say something similar to Moses. When the people come to Moses, and they want to stone him. They want to kill him, get a leader for themselves so that they can go back to Egypt. And God says to Moses, don't worry, Moses, it's not about you. They hate you because they hate me. Jesus is going to say the same thing to his disciples. Don't worry. Hey, the world's going to hate you, but they're going to hate you because they hated me. They're going to hate me because they hate God. And so there's something exposing about their own heart here that God's pointing out. And what's interesting is God's going to say, yeah, let's, let's roll with this. We're going to do it, but which is keeping with the number theme of the Scripture, and that is God sovereignly, providentially being over everything, giving people even the sinful desires they want so that God in the midst of that is going to do the great thing he plans to do anyway. God knows what they're doing. They're rejecting him in favor of mankind. Though Samuel warned the people about all the troubles that were certain to come, he's going to warn them in the rest of chapter 8. They're not going to care. By the time we get down to verses 19 and 20, no, they say, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Does that job description sound familiar to you at this point? Who said he would be that to them? God's like, I'm going to take you out of the nations, out of Egypt. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will go before you. I will fight your battles. And they're just saying, yeah, no. We want a person to do that. We want some human to do that. These things that God did perfectly. He was the perfect judge. Perfect in fighting their battles. But they wanted a man to replace him. You know, they were meant to be distinctive from the world. They're like, no, we, we actually want to look like the world, be like the world. Again, it's so tempting for us, right? There's something about following Jesus in every generation, every age that makes you look silly to people, that makes you look foolish, that makes you look unsophisticated. You go out into the world as a follower of Christ, announcing your love for Christ, your devotion to Christ, and it's like you just get a little pat on the head. Oh, that's cute. That's sweet. Yeah, a lot of people used to believe that kind of thing. But now we've grown up. We've moved past that. We're on to other things. They want to move on to other things. To follow the footsteps of the world, to be like the world, to look like the world, to have what the world has. That's what they wanted. It's where their trouble is going to begin, it's where our trouble usually begins. We, too, are prone to desire, to seek, to put trust in human powers and created things. We may think even what's happened in this country over the last year, two years, four years, five years, is new. No, we're just replaying the same old song. New verse, same song. Trust in people. Look to people. Believe the buck stops with people. Human powers, created things. I think the real trouble begins and ends with political systems, with civic leaders, with all kinds of other circumstantial factors when, in fact, the trouble begins with our fear of the wrong dangers, our faith in the wrong powers. That's that's where God has always wanted the heart of his people. Don't fear all that. Don't put faith in all that. Fear me. Put faith in me. It applies to the church. Christ is the head of the church. Right? His word is supreme. Yet, how often and how quickly do we put all of our hope, all of our faith in human leaders? Again, there's a value to leaders. There's a value to elders, to pastors, to community group leaders, to yeah, leaders over homes, leaders over communities. But it's, again, God working through them, or not, if he pleases whether it's using them for good or using them for evil it's always seeing there's someone behind it all who's bigger more glorious more powerful and he's the one we follow the problem did not begin with Saul but with here with the people god's not enough his grace is not f- sufficient his word will not do i'd rather have the creature rule me not the creator There's going to be a reason that Israel is going to go into exile in Babylon. Remember, one of the reasons God is going to say is so that they would learn the rule of man over the rule of God. You want human leaders? Let me give you Nebuchadnezzar. You're not so hot on my word, on following me? Great. Let me give you Cyrus. And then you can see the difference between having me as king and them as king. Because it always starts out so good, right? It always looks so romantic, like... Okay, this is it. We finally got the right person in place. And yet every story as it goes on reveals otherwise. We just keep looking for the next little savior to appear. We're hardwired to be savior seekers. That's just how it is to be human. All people, they're hardwired to seek saviors. Hardwired to worship something, someone. The only question is, okay, who? So they're gonna first. Then they're gonna a king that they deserve. They're gonna reject God and demand a king. And in 1 Samuel 8:22, the Lord announces that He will give them what they want. He will give them a king, which is in part an act of discipline. Somebody's gonna do here is teach and instruct, but at the same time, it's gonna be this foreordained sort of act of God in redemptive history. Through their sinful desire for a king, He's gonna give a king to create now this type of a king to come this type of a kingdom to come. So even though it's wrong what the people are doing, God's going to sort of jujitsu that, sort of use the momentum of their sinful desire to turn it back and use it to sort of now establish this type of a king to come, this type of a kingdom to come. It'll be a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the one who would someday be king over God's people. In other words, God will rule his people and a man will rule his people. All at the same time, forever. And so both God and man will be king all at once. And do you realize that's actually what's happening right now? A man actually reigns over the universe, and God reigns over the universe all at once in one person. Jesus, fully God, fully man, and he's king of kings, Lord of lords. He reigns over everything. But first, he would give them a king that they deserve which happens to be the king that they want. The Lord's going to give them Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. If you look at 1 Samuel 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel. And Saul's going to be one of his sons. He's a man, verse 1, of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. That's why he's going to be pretty impressive to some of them. He's wealthy, he's handsome, he's tall, he's strong, he looks the part. Notice how it's it's very opposite to how Jesus came. Though he was rich, he became poor. There's nothing about his appearance that people would desire him, nothing about him that was attractive to others. He was like one from whom we hide our faces. It's one reason we know all the paintings are wrong of Jesus when you see him around. He's just too good looking. He's like, yeah, he wouldn't have looked like that. A bit too American and a bit too good looking. But that's exactly what Saul's going to be. He's going to look good. He's going to be physically impressive. His appearance is persuasive. Then the Lord's going to orchestrate all these events in chapter 9 to, to bring Saul to Samuel. And then Samuel's going to anoint Saul king in 1 Samuel 10.1. And then we're going to see in the early days of Saul, things are going to seem to, to start off pretty well. If you look at first Samuel ten nine, it says, When then the Spirit of the Lord, or I'm sorry, ten six, and the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with him and be turned into another man. Verse seven, for God is with you. Verse nine, when he, that is Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. A chapter later, 1 Samuel eleven six, 6, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he goes to war with the Ammonites, and he's going to destroy them. After defeating the Ammonites, look at 1 Samuel eleven thirteen. Saul's going to say, today, the Lord has brought, has worked salvation in Israel. So he's going to show these initial moments of promise, these early days. You're like, oh, this, this might work. This is better than we thought it would be. And he happens to be handsome, happens to be tall. He's a warrior. He just defeated his enemies in battle. Now to all the people, like, okay, he's the man. There are some that initially rejected him and said, we don't want this guy. But after he wins this one battle, people are like, okay, where are those guys? Bring them out. Let's kill them. How quickly it changes. And Saul's like, no, no, nobody's going to be put to death today. The Lord's worked great victory. So you see even wisdom, some forgiveness maybe. But then time of testing will come. And the heart of Saul will be revealed, which is our second big section. The heart of Saul revealed. Turn with me, if you would, to First Samuel 13. In 1 Samuel 12, a time's going to come for Samuel to step aside as the judge of Israel. He's actually going to give some final words of counsel, some kind of a final sermon to the nation. He's going to say in 1 Samuel 12, 23, Moreover, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider the great things he has done for you but if you still do wickedly you shall be swept away both you and your king you love how Samuel considers it sinful not to pray for them how many of us think about it that way not just oh it would be nice if i prayed but it's sinful for me not to pray for my leaders sinful for me not to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, sinful for me to not petition the Lord, talk to the Lord, respond to the Lord in words. So he says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. And here's the root of that. Fear the Lord. Revere him. Be in awe of him. Be amazed at him. Delight in him. Take counsel from him. Hear his word and heed it. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with what? All your heart. Just hearkens back to Deuteronomy 6, to God's desire for the nation of Israel from the very beginning, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. For consider the great things he has done for you. Consider how he brought you out of Egypt. Consider how he defeated your enemies. Consider how he forgave your sins. Consider all the great things that he's done. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And he really does, with these words, sort of set the stage for the chapters to come. That humble fear of the Lord, faithful service to the Lord with a whole heart, is what God really wants. That's his delight is to have the hearts of his people, to have their faith, to have their loyalty, to have their trust, to have their worship. And this will not be what Saul gives. There's going to be two particular events in the reign of Saul that are going to really highlight this, really bring that struggle in his heart to the surface, his fear of man rather than fear of God. One's going to be a sinful action, a false Sacrifice. That's what we're going to get in First Samuel 13. It'll come about two years into his reign. The Lord's going to give victory over a Philistine garrison through Jonathan in those early verses. Verses 1 through 4. And then the Philistines are certainly going to hear about this. That Jonathan led a group and they defeated the Philistine garrison. And so now they're going to muster all their troops. As many as the sand of the sea. They're going to bring a great multitude out. And Saul's son in verse 3 is who's going to bring that about, Jonathan. And then the people are going to follow Saul till Gilgal in verse 7, but they're going to be terrified. Look at what it says. And Saul was still Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. And again, that's a word that you see that is meant to apply to how we feel in the presence of God, right? We're meant to tremble. Yet here we see it's this thing that the people feel in the presence of the Philistine army. They're trembling. They're following Saul, but they're afraid. This is going to be a time for prayer, a time for worship, a time for humble sacrifice, a time for reliance upon the Lord rather than upon men. And Samuel told Saul, okay, I'll be there in seven days. Listen to what happens in verse 8. And Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. So due to their sort of fear and impatience, the people start to leave. They start scattering. And Saul, as you see, he panics. Though he's not a priest... He's going to offer a sacrifice, which he had no right to do, no place to do, all because he feared, God, feared man and not God. The people are scattering. Oh, no, what am I going to do? I guess I'll just grab the sacrifice, do it myself, take control of the situation, even though he wasn't a priest, hadn't been told by God to do it, had been told by Samuel to wait, he's going to jump in and do it himself, as if that sacrifice is just a tool to be used. Something just to get soldiers to stay with him. God had delayed Samuel just long enough to expose the heart of Saul. But then brought Samuel just soon enough to see what Saul did. To see what came out of Saul in that vacuum. Isn't God a genius? He knows just how to delay long enough in giving you what you want. Just how to wait for your fears to bubble up. And just when that stuff comes flowing out, he brings an eyewitness, which is what the Christian life is, right? It's a perfect testimony ruined by an eyewitness. People see, and now we see in that moment. Samuel sees. This is what comes out of Saul. The wisdom and the power of God waits just long enough to expose what's truly inside him. So think for a minute, do you ever wonder why God delays in giving you what you want? why He might delay even in giving you what He promises? And I think one reason is is to expose us, to test us, to train us, not just for the sake of tearing us down, but for the sake of helping us see what the real danger actually is. Notice, it's not the Philistine Army. I was like, that's really not your danger. These hundreds of thousands of enemy soldiers that want to kill you. That's not where the trouble is. The trouble is, where you fear me or fear people? Will you live for my pleasure or their pleasure? Will you wait on my hand to lead things, or are you going to take control and take it into your own hands? And how many things, if we look back on our life, like when we took control of it and just grabbed it with our own hands, it didn't go well. And that's usually God sort of showing, trust me, not you. Live for my pleasure, not for people's pleasure. Do we fear God or man? Do we revere Christ in his name or ourselves in our names? And sometimes we don't know the answer to that question until things really start to unravel. So people start to scatter from us, enemies start to press in, the danger of circumstances really sets around us. Verse 10, and Saul went out to meet him, to meet Samuel, and greet him. I love this. Samuel said, what have you done? Just right to the point. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering." So Saul went out to Samuel as if everything's totally fine, totally understandable. Samuel, if you just let me explain, it's really actually pretty cool what I did. Just a picture of how oblivious he is to the sin that came out. The sin of playing priest, the sin of irreverence toward God, the sin of faithless impatience, the sin of using religion to keep, get people to rally around him. The sin of fearing people rather than fearing God. The sin of people pleasing rather than God pleasing. And so these are just this just keeps showing itself through his response to Samuel, even after he's offered this false sacrifice. First he's going to try to blame Samuel. Do you notice that? You did not come within the days appointed. Hey, it's the woman you gave me. That's why. Well, it's the serpent. Aaron, what did this people do to you that you would sin against God this way with this golden calf? It's like, well, you know, the people, they were just kind of upset at this. They brought gold. I threw it in the furnace and out came this calf. Remember? That's his explanation. Yeah, I just threw it in the furnace and this calf came out. Well, there's a lot of craftsmanship that happened in the middle. A lot more that went on in the story that Aaron holds back, that Adam holds back. So again, this is a pattern for human life. We tend to be oblivious to how God really sees the situations. He tries to reframe his actions as devotion to God. The Philistines will come down. I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So even the sacrifice was an act of worship to seek God's grace, to seek his favor. So it may look bad, but it's actually a really great thing what I'm doing. He even presented his actions as unavoidable. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You know, I, I really didn't want to, but, you know, I just had to. Couldn't help it. No other option. Again, I think this is where we have to slow down and kind of soak in what's going on. Do you see yourself here? I know I do. When confronted with danger and potential for great loss, What do we tend to think and do? What tends to come out of us? How do we even manipulate God to get what we want? Use people to justify what we do. Spend situations to convince ourselves and others that we're actually doing right. When really we're not. And we just, our public relations department just starts working overtime. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look, like if I look at my life, like I've got about 84 staff in my PR department and like two staff members in my obedience department. And God's trying to show that that has to reverse. Fire all your PR people and hire more obedience people. We will expend enormous amounts of energy managing our image, far less energy pursuing God obeying his word, or when we don't, just repenting, looking to Christ, actually appealing for his grace by the means that he provided. And, of course, God always just sees right through, as he's going to do with Saul through the words of Samuel, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. Notice how the words that God through Samuel is going to use to explain Saul are not the words that Saul used to explain Saul. And this is why even books like Knowing God that I just handed out are so important or just God's word. Or how important is it to really know this God who speaks? To really know what his word says. To really hide it in our hearts. To really ask for the spirit of God to govern us and rule us. To really live humbly before him. To really walk by his grace. Not our own wisdom. Saul says, well, I sought the favor of the Lord. God calls it foolish. Saul says, well, I offered a sacrifice. God calls it blatant disobedience. That's scary, isn't it? (laughs) It's scary to consider how vastly different my appraisal of my life might be from God's appraisal of my life. If God were to write about my life right now, perhaps some significant event in recent weeks, what words would He use? What would He call what I think, feel, do? Again, this isn't meant to just trap us in shame and guilt, but show us our need for God's grace, our need for Savior, our need for someone else's righteousness to be imputed to us. Because just standing before God or his prophet and debating our case for why we're actually pretty great doesn't hold up. It's really tempting to surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear. Just an echo chamber of positive affirming feedback. Yeah, we all need encouragement. Encouragement is good but also speaking the truth in love. That's why David prayed, let the righteous smite me, it is kindness. Let him reprove me, it's oil upon my head. Let not my head refuse it. That's why David's going to be a man after God's own heart. Not because David is sinless, but because David is repentant. David is humbled. David sees where his righteousness comes from. And he prays, God, let, yeah, just send the righteous to me to strike me. I'll consider it a kindness. Let them reprove me. I'll consider it blessing from you. Oh, Lord, please not let my head refuse it. That's why God gives us spouses and parents and children and friends in a church to help us see. And it may seem as though the Lord is being too severe, like Saul fails once and gets ax. But that would be, I think, to read the scripture, read the story in a man-centered way. I think what we want to see first is like any single act of rebellion against the Lord who is infinitely holy is a massive crime. We tend to minimize that. But really, second of all, this act of rebellion is a symptom of something deeper that's going to play itself out in the life of Saul over the rest of his life. A heart condition, a soul posture of unbelief and a reverence to the Lord. That's what God is seeing right now in him, calling attention to We're going to see it again confirmed in another event in 1 Samuel 15, and that's a sinful inaction, a refusal to sacrifice. The first is a false sacrifice. Now it's going to be a refusal to sacrifice. Any, though, before we get to that, any questions, comments, thoughts about anything we've said so far? So the question is, at this point in Saul's life, how long has he been king? So he's been king at this point about two years when this first event is going to happen. And then there's going to be another passage of time. More is going to happen, but then now this next second kind of final nail in the coffin event is going to happen. Yeah, so about two years. So 1 Samuel 15 And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, so this is super clear, listen to God's words through me to you. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. It's a reference to Exodus 17 when People are coming, they're tired, they're hungry through the wilderness, God's brought them out, and Amalek, the Amalekites, start attacking them and trying to kill them, kind of the ultimate cheap shot. And God's like, I've taken note of that, I remember that, even though it was centuries ago, and I vowed I'm going to destroy them. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have, do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's strong. But he's saying it because this isn't about Israel getting revenge. This is about God vindicating his own name. Vindicating his own glory. Because what the Amalekites did to Israel, God saw as a personal affront. This isn't about Israel getting revenge. Is about God's glory being upheld, God's exaltedness being seen, God's name being vindicated, God's holy justice, God making a statement to the world that he is Lord. And so after they ruthlessly attacked Israel in those days, attacking men, women, child, infant, God in Exodus 17 vowed to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. It's going to wipe them out. So Saul's going to summon the army and they're going to go to war. In 1 Samuel 15, 9, it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. See the choice of words? God says, I will utterly blot them out. It says Saul wouldn't utterly because there was stuff that was pretty good. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Despised and worthless to who? Well, to them. They decided, let's just redefine what this means. To God, it was all despised. To Saul and the people, only some of it was despised. To God, it was all to be destroyed as a statement about his holy character and justice. To them, it was just loot. So they thought, yeah, let's just trim a little fat from the words of God's law. Let's just reinterpret it to fit what we kind of want to do and what will profit us. And now the whole point is lost. It just looks like a human raid for spoil rather than the vindication of God's name. So, you know, after David's going to commit adultery with Bathsheba and then kill Uriah and, and then take her as as his wife it said and the thing David did displeased the Lord and in the next chapter through Nathan he's going to say you've given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme and that's why I'm going to take this child remember the child that was born of that relationship God's going to strike and it wasn't out of punishment for that baby it wasn't even to purchase some kind of forgiveness from them it was to make a point to the whole world David the whole world knows what you did and you're my anointed king And you've given a reason for all my enemies to blaspheme my name. And so I'm going to make it real clear that I am holy. Well, Saul's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to keep what I want. The people are going to keep it. And we'll just kill what we don't like. And here's what God says in verse 10 to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And again, Saul's going to be completely blind to this. Saul isn't going to see it. Notice how in verse 12 it says he set up a monument to himself. It's like, man, I crushed this. I'm just super faithful. I'm hitting bullseyes. I'm going to just go ahead and set up a monument to myself. In verse 13, Samuel came to him. And once more, Saul's going to come out as if everything is just great. He says, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Again, see that in contrast to verse 10? He has not performed my commandments, is what God says. Saul says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. It's the definition of oblivious. Blind to what's really coming out, to how it really looks. That's why every day we'd go, okay, Lord, have mercy. Help me see. Help me revere, help me worship, help me follow. It's one of the reasons why having physical blindness is more, is easier to deal with than spiritual blindness. Because when you're physical blind, you, you know you're physically blind. You actually run into stuff and feel that. You actually realize your need for help. When you're spiritually blind, one of the elements of spiritual blindness is blindness to the blindness. You don't even see, I don't even see that I'm blind and what we need. So rather than fearfully, faithfully, humbly, God-dependently fulfilling the words of the Lord, Saul sort of lowered the word of God to fit what he really wanted to do, which was please all the people. He lowered the word of God to justify what all his buddies wanted to do so that he wouldn't look silly to the world, so he wouldn't be a party pooper. So he could sort of please God and people all at one time. And then try to pass it off as obedience. But Then all it really took is an honest look at the evidence from an objective observer. Verse 14, and Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul remembers what God said and he comes in and Saul's like, hey, I've crushed it, I've done it. I have like totally performed the commandment of the Lord. And Sam was looking around going, where'd all this livestock come from? What's all this stuff? The evidence of the disobedience, it's everywhere. Saul's been there 15 seconds and the problem is super obvious. Saul just didn't do what God commanded him to do. Saul's going to honor God with his lips, but his heart is far from him. And here's Saul's chance to see the problem. Here's his chance to comprehend his sin. Here's his chance to grieve his offense against God and repent. Here's his chance to cry out to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. But look at what he's going to do. Verse 15, he says, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. Yes, Samuel, it may look bad, but it's the people, not me. And it's for the purpose of worshiping God, not worldliness. And the rest we've devoted to destruction, which is good enough, right? Went far enough. See what he's doing? The real problem is external, not internal. My motivation is pure, not impure. My obedience is sufficient may not be 100%, but it's like enough, right? I mean, it's on a curve. I still passed. That's what he's saying. This is where once more we have to kind of slow down and soak that in. To kind of see ourselves in the story. See our need for grace in the story. Just how complete is our conformity to the words of God? How carefully do we study every word of every commandment he's ever spoken? in order to pray that he would help us to truly obey him from the heart. How often do we say what Saul said? I'm not the main problem of my life. Everyone else is. My motivations are pure. My intentions are good. It may look wrong, but don't worry, it's fine. It may look as if I've stopped halfway, but my obedience is enough. I don't know about you, I'm tempted to do all that. When backed into a corner, when what's yucky really comes out, how, much, how tempting it is to whitewash it, to maneuver it, smoke and mirrors. It's not me, it's something outside doing it. What's really inside is actually pretty good. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I love that. Just stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me. That's what we need, right? Stop. Let the Bible tell you what it is. Let God's word sort of win the day. Let him have the say. Then Samuel's going to recount all the words of the Lord about how Saul was low. The Lord exalted him as king. How the Lord had sent Saul on a mission for the sake of God's name and sovereign purpose. In verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce What a word. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? A lot of times we don't just play with the world. We pounce on it. Like in ways we may not even realize. Saul's going to pounce on it. You can notice the words of God used to explain Saul. You did not obey. You pounced on the spoil. You did what is evil. To which Saul's going to quickly reply in verse twenty. I have obeyed, I have gone, I have devoted, I have brought, but the people for the sake of sacrifice still defending still arguing, still maneuvering, still managing image again the fear of man brings a snare he who trusts in the Lord is safe you can see the PR department now, it's working like overtime, he's up the staff from 84 to 184 he's going to double down there's just no digging ourselves out from our sin. It's one of the first things we need to realize. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And what life Saul is meant to show us is don't try to dig yourself out. Just own it. Confess it. Secondly, don't sort of twist it and make it seem what it isn't. Call it what it is. Lord, I have sinned against you. That's why, you know, the the tax collector who's praying in the marketplace, where the Pharisee's praying, I thank you, Father, you haven't made me like everybody else. You've made me great, amazing, righteous, not like this tax collector. The tax collector says, Father, forgive me, the sinner. And Jesus says, that's the guy that goes away justified. The one who sees it, owns it, grieves it, mourns it, and then comes to the only one that can truly redeem him the only one that can forgive him, God. That's why I praise God that he doesn't just leave us in this, but he actually sent his son into the world because we were never going to figure it out. The problem wasn't external, it was internal. The solution wasn't inside, it was outside. So God has to send Jesus, his own son, into the world to take on human flesh, to live righteously, to obey perfectly, to do everything Saul couldn't do, wouldn't do. Then to actually go to the cross and die to pay for the cost for the penalty of all the sin we did. And then to be raised for our justification, to be seated at the right hand of God to intercede for us. And even now the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. That's one of the things we're meant to see here. Rather than keep digging, keep excusing, it's come clean. Run to the Savior. Any questions, comments, thoughts as we start to wrap up? Yes. Yes, yeah, great question. So in 1 Samuel 15, 2, when he says, I regret, and even Samuel's going to say later in the chapter, yeah, God doesn't regret. So it's actually one of the, it first looks like a, a contradiction. God's saying, well, I regret. And, and you can translate that word, repent. I repent. But it's just a great illustration of how language can be used flexibly and how much it depends on the context. And so what God isn't saying here is, oh, wow, I did not see this coming. But rather, he's showing us something about his own character, that I gave you the king that you demanded, the king you, you deserved, but it's not the king I wanted, And so now I'm going to communicate that to you through this word regret. This was not the king that was right for you. And not because he made a mistake. And then when Samuel's going to say later, it's not for the Lord to regret. He's using the word in a very different way. It's not for God to linger as if he did something wrong. It's not for him to mull it over as if, oh, I messed up. It's not for him to go back on his word or to make a mistake. So it's a great example where, where the same word is being used in different contexts to express different things, um, kind of like in the way that the book of James uses the word justification. He doesn't use justification the way Paul's going to use it in Romans. And so the justification James is talking about is a justification of your faith before people, whereas Paul's talking about a justification by your faith before God. And here you're going to have a kind of regret that God is expressing, that's showing us his heart that this is not the king that he wanted. This is not the king that was after his own heart. And it's not trying to convey that he made a mistake. Um, so yeah, really good, good question. It show, it's one of those things that really shows how important it is to, to read the context over and over and over again. To also read it in the context of the whole Bible. Because uh, this is where when you first read it, you go, okay, that's confusing. Um, but Good question. Maybe one more question before we close. Yeah. Yeah. I fear I need the crash card you caused a heart attack here yes Yeah, so it, yeah, you know, just the idea that we'd love it to just be all one thing going on inside us, but it seems like even now as those who are His children, who are redeemed, who are forgiven, who are filled with the Spirit, there's a war going on in our hearts. In one part, wanting to fear God, but in another way, still fearing people. And that's part of what sanctification is. It's growing in our fear of the Lord, diminishing in our fear of people. And the fear of the Lord is, in many ways, what puts the fear of people to death, the fear of the Lord is what puts all the other fears to death. Um, and also just, yeah, being in the Word and walking in the Spirit and being humble before God and depending upon His grace, that those are all things that God's going to use to keep conforming us to the image of His Son. That's why Paul can say, I, I'm confident of this thing, that He who begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And part of what he's perfecting is our fears, our fear of the Lord. And that's why... You know, Paul is going to say toward the end of his life about affliction that's coming, pain that's coming, rejection that's coming. He's like, it just doesn't move me. He says in Acts twenty, for I don't consider my life as dear to myself, so that I can finish my race in the ministry the Lord's given to me. And I read that and I go, I have no idea what he's talking about. Like, that's so great. And Lord, I would, that would be so awesome. And Lord, please put that in me. But that's still so much a work in progress. But I know saints who have gotten there. Like there's, there's brothers and sisters I've known who have been walking with the Lord 50 years and, and enjoying his grace and being conformed to his image and are being sanctified in the truth. And it really has gotten to the point where they really aren't afraid about what people think. They really don't care. Sometimes you wish they cared a little more just because of what comes out. So, but, it, but there's still, you realize, oh wait, no, there, there's a freedom there. For that saint who has been walking with Jesus over the long haul is being sanctified in the truth. And really has come to buy into, yeah, I I just fear God. And that fear is not a cowering afraid of God, but a reverent awe of God. Um, Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for this time in your word this morning. We do thank you for these words that are written for our instruction. We do thank you for Jesus our Redeemer, our Savior, the one who has purchased our forgiveness from all our unholy fears, and your Spirit who's teaching us even now how to fear rightly, and for your patience toward us in teaching us and conforming us to the image of your Son. So we pray that you would continue that good work in Christ's name. Amen.